Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. It was Socrates who said the only true wisdom is in knowing that you know nothing. How right he was. This humbling truth, along with many others, is what the book of Proverbs is all about. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a verse-by-verse study through chapter 29. Good evening again. Welcome you back to Proverbs. We're finishing up and... uh, You know, I'm going to let you know that we come to the end of the section of buckshot-style proverbs. You know, every one or two verses, the subject changes a little bit. After this chapter, we only have two chapters to left, and the closing two chapters uh, are longer passages. So this style has come to an end. We've been doing it since chapter 10. So that's a lot of weeks of this style. So we have covered hundreds and hundreds of wise sayings is what the Proverbs are, practical wisdom for everyday living. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Father God, it's a joy to be back in your word in in this beautiful section of wisdom, a collection of just wonderful knowledge of how to make the most of our lives how to avoid pitfalls and all kinds of painful problems just by keeping our hearts on the straight and narrow path. So, Father, give us fresh insight tonight according to your wonderful grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. So it was the Greek philosopher Socrates who actually said this, the only true wisdom is in knowing that you know nothing. Now, he was on the right track. And, and you know, uh, there are several proverbs that says the beginning of wisdom is to acknowledge that all wisdom is found in him and not in ourselves. And so it is possible that he got word of the Proverbs because he lived uh, 400 years before Christ. Proverbs were already circulating for four or 500 years, and there were Jews in Greece because of the, it's called the diaspora, uh, when uh, Babylon came in and took the Jews out and scattered them everywhere. And so there were Jews in modern-day Europe, and the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures were there. And so anyway, I just thought that was interesting that he said something so uh, close to being scriptural. Believers know that, of course, um, there is no wisdom inside the human heart that can save us. Um, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 says that in Christ, uh, it says, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if you want anything that's going to mean any value whatsoever, we look to Christ, of course. And it's that humility of an understanding that we need him. And we don't know, we don't have all the answers. And so um, God has all the wisdom. And uh, fortunately for us, he wants to share that 
with us. And he does so through the Holy Spirit, but the biggest place he shares that wisdom is the Bible. It's just 66 books of wisdom, but there's, a, as you well know, a wonderful treasure chest of just dedicated to sharing wisdom for practical living. It's called the, the Book of Proverbs, which we've been in for weeks now. So uh, I, I'm happy to have a, a place in the Bible to turn to every day to med- meditate on how to be smart uh, biblically, to have a blessed life and how to handle difficult people, difficult situations and, and problems in my own heart and mind. It's all right there, 31 chapters every day, uh, one for each day of the month. And so let's see what's in chapter 29. Let's begin. A man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will be suddenly destroyed uh, without remedy. So we're off to a pretty serious start tonight. (laughs) Uh, So here, a sober warning about the lethalness of spiritual stubbornness. You know, there's even uh, even an end to God's patience. Uh, God has the longest fuse on the the face of the earth, right? Uh, Even his own um, revelation of himself, he says, the Lord, the Lord, this is who I am, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives sins and transgressions, and sin, and yet by no means will leave the guilty unpunished. And that's this part, is that after he exhausts his patience, and, and he's rebuking through pastors and teachers and your conscience and the word of God, and through sermons and through common sense, and after he gets a sense that uh, there's going to be no changing here, then he says that suddenly uh, disaster strikes, and and some people will find all of a sudden that the consequences catch up, and uh, they are moved past the place uh, where there's an easy fix uh, for uh, the problem, and so. Stiff-necked, it just means you, won't, you will not be turned. He's trying to turn you. And, and you know, you hear. You get, you're getting the... And you will not turn. Because, and he calls that stiff-necked. He says, uh, listen, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Everybody in this room knows what it's like to hear it and say, no, not today, for whatever reason. Or no, not at this moment. I will later. Every single one of us knows, and he just says, too much of that? You'll end up at the place I'm trying to keep you from, and it'll be a disaster, and it'll be too late, because you kept ignoring the turn. Don't do that. Verse 2. When the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. Now, this is interesting. It's just wisdom to remind God's people that you'll either bring, you'll either be a source of pain to people or you'll be a source of joy. You'll be a benefit or a a liability. 
and he's raising future leaders in the original context, and he's just saying when good, God-fearing people thrive in the ideas that increase and gain control of a situation in their authority, that there's joy and peace and safety for people. And, uh, but godless people are in charge of any area. They'll always be suffering. And so really, that's what he's saying. Uh, the same goes for a, a godless professor or a godless boss or a godless supervisor, or a godless parent. So much, so many times I'll talk to somebody and they'll get tears in their eyes as an adult reliving a childhood drama because mom or dad didn't have the scruples to know maybe I should say no to sexual temptation. And so this is just saying, listen, it's more about just you. There are people that are either going to thrive and be nurtured because of your decisions, or hurt and hindered and scarred and wounded and limp along till they're old, like me. <laughs> Apparently, Ross forecast, you know. I told that I was buying the flowers, right? It's a bunny trail, hop along with me. I'm buying, speaking of old and living long and all of that, I'm buying the flowers and I said to the guy, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, he looked at me like, what'd you do this time? <laughs> so I said, no, 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 no. It's our anniversary, you know, and he said, how long? And I said, 31 long years. And, and he goes, long years? <laughs> like, I said, no, not like that. I, I looked at him. He's like 18 years old. So I was saying long. They're long. I've been married a long time. And he's like, I won't tell your wife you said that. But, you know, anyway, so... All right, but I digress. What's new with that? Verse 3. We will get through this. A man who loves wisdom brings joy to his father. Here it is again. But a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. Let's talk about that. Now, it's an often repeated motivation that worked as we've been talking about. This appears a lot in the Proverbs. Uh, it worked many uh, years ago that uh, young people cared, would care as a motivator to do the right thing and say no to temptation uh, for the family name, for mom and dad. We don't want to send them to their graves bitter and crying and sad and upset. Or we don't want to see them crying themselves to sleep. But it doesn't really matter these days. Uh, but in some parts of the world, it still works as a motivator. Uh, and uh, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, but not in 21st century uh, Western civilization. But it, there is no greater joy. If you've ever had a kid, there's no greater joy. John says it spiritually of his spiritual children. He says, there is no greater joy than to know my children are walking in the truth. Because they're safe. They're going to have God's favor. They're not going to disgrace themselves or, or fall into some trap. There's no greater joy. And so we, the first part is saying that. And then there comes the contrast, the antithesis uh, of the, the poor parents of somebody who uh, notice this. And, he, and Proverbs does it a lot, doesn't it? It says, uh, not the guy who squanders the money on wild and immoral living. It's the guy who hangs out with them. Why does he always say that? He says, because you are who you hang out with. You really are. So if you hang out with guys who say, okay, you know, uh, dad is spending, uh, contemporize it, okay? Dad is financing your college career. And then you're 
uh, going out, let's go out, party, let's go out drinking, let's go to the strip club, uh, let's go to spring break, sorry to defile your minds, but that's what it's talking about. It's talking about using dad and family resources with a bottomless pit of seeking pleasure and uh, that kind of lifestyle. He says, and he may be talking about inheritance here as well, because family wealth was passed on, and then how sad that all those years of hard work, you pass it on to somebody who just wants to party and has no moral scruples whatsoever. That's the point. Here's what he's saying. His son, is that you? Would you do that to mom and dad? Is that the kind of person you are? That, see, it's not just a statement. He's saying, Rehoboam, are you going to do that to mom? Verse 4. By justice, a king gives a country stability, but one who is greedy for bribes tears it down. Again, he's raising future heirs, right, to the throne and to leadership. This is simple. A nation is secure when justice prevails. Uh, Really, a leader's integrity or the lack thereof really will make or break whatever we're talking about. If it's a nation, a church, a family, an organization, a company, the leader sets the tone. And if the leader is unethical and immoral, and, and there's no such thing as righteousness there, uh, then that thing is not going to fare well. Verse 5. Whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. Now, the Proverbs talks a lot about flattery. In fact, if you're a note taker, and I know a lot of you are, you can jot down uh, chapter 5, verse 3. Chapter 6, verse 24. Chapter 7, verse 5. Chapter 26, verse 28. Chapter 28, verse 23. On flattery. Uh, what the, the Hebrew word for flattery uh, simply means to deal smoothly or slippery. Um, and I think we get the point there. In Greek, it means a great swelling. You're pumping up the ego of the other person. Now, what, what really is it to flatter? Well, it's excessive and insincere praise given to manipulate a person uh, to further one's own interest. And so you want something from that person, and uh, it's not above board, because if it were, you could just come out and try to get what you need uprightly. But instead, you have to go into this. this deception mode, right? And so that's where the trap is. You're setting a trap for that person. Now, the wise person uh, with an ounce of the Holy Spirit on board can tell the difference between somebody who wants to build you up and somebody who wants to set you up. And and you will will know, thank you, three people who who like that one. (laughs) You, You just know. You just know by experience and, and God's prompting. Um, you have to be careful for that, uh, about that. Now, what's interesting to me is the twist that I pondered here was, who, who's the net spread for? Well, actually, the net is spread for the flatterer, too, because the Holy Spirit will out you. He always does. Your sin will find you out. And the Holy Spirit will tell the person, you know, not every, we know, <laughs> people know, and then they act accordingly. 
And so what happens is you think you're setting the trap for him, but actually you step in it and there you go, right? Did you like that one? All right, thank you. Verse six, an evil man is snared by his own sin, kind of like that, but a righteous, uh, but a righteous person, a righteous one can sing and be glad. So the secret to a carefree heart here. The literal Hebrew, sometimes you know how if you, if you just read it straight in Hebrew, it's kind of fun because you can kind of get some insight. And here's what it says. It says, in the sin of a bad man is a snare. So in your own sin, with your intention to commit, is the trap that you're setting by your own sin. And it's in you. It's in your hand. So why, why would you stick your finger into, you know, a, a big mousetrap, you know, set to spring? You know, that looks painful. And we're, so we're just talking about a minor trap there. You've seen those bear traps, right? Right? So he's saying, when you want to sin, you're, that the trap is in the sin, but Satan and your own deceitful heart tell, just, just show you the thrill and the temporary excitement of it doesn't show you that actually that is a bear trap. And you're, the more you get close to committing and doing it is the more you're actually setting it out in front of your own bare feet and you're about to step into it. And it happens every single time. And sooner or later, you're going here. And it, oh. You know, and every single one of us in this room has gotten an owie of some degree. And amen? Amen. Uh, okay. <laughs> and be a little bit more louder than that because I know, I know, right? I know it's sad, but true. All right. So, so he says, uh, you know, but the righteous can sing and be glad. Why? Because you don't have the trap. You're not setting a trap. You can, you can sing, you can whistle, you can be going on your way, whistling, great is thy faithfulness. You're not going to fall into anything that God isn't with you and helping and using for good. It's just carefree to not have your mind set on doing the wrong thing. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. And then you're going to have a lot of joy. You know, amen? amen. Verse 7. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. So, people of God, who's going to care for them? Who's going to care for the down and out, the needy, the people who are unlovable because of their need and their in inconvenience to people because they require care and resources and time? Who's going to do it? Who is going to care on this planet? You want people who are blind to truth? and dead to God, and disconnected from life, who are headed for hell, you think it's their responsibility to say, hey, I'm going to sh show some mercy here. I'm going to help the disenfranchised, or the poor, or the needy, or, or, the, or, or hang out with sinners like Jesus did to help them see the light. Who's, who's going to do that? That's what he's asking here. It's our job. It, it, there's, there, there's no hope. If it's not us, we have to have, we have to nurture that and our sinful hearts don't like that. And so uh, he's saying, listen, nurture that, bring them the gospel care, pray that God increase your compassion. 
by the way, we're increasing our budget, um, uh, the church's budget, to help the poor. We, we already give about 10% of our budget uh, to uh, outreach, right? But I, I really just really feel like the Lord just is saying the poor, the poor, but in Jesus' name. And so well, we already do a lot of that. And uh, I'm very proud of, uh, in, in a biblical way, <laughs> of uh, this church and the giving. And uh, it's just important. God cares about the poor. So let's just, let's up that. And so you can know when you give here that you are given to the poor. I would encourage you to give also outside. Uh, but when you give your tithes and offering, that's, that's fulfilling some of uh, the responsibility to care for the poor. Verse 8. Mockers stir up a city, but wise men turn away anger. The Bible places a high value on those who bring peace. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll see God. Peace, bring peace. He, he, he says, it's the highest degree of uh, foolishness to be a mocker who is hard-hearted and always stirring up trouble. God does not like that. Uh, the wise in the second clause are people who put out fires. They calm people down. They bring people together. They restore order. It's not peace at any cost. Paul the apostle went into a city, and it was turned upside down, and everybody wanted to kill him, and they're shouting, and they're angry. So it, 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 stirring, up, <laughs> stirring up a city, you can actually do by being righteous. We're not talking about that. We're talking about bad guys. Bad guys who stir up, you know, the coup d'etat people, the, 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 the ones who resist authority, who were duly elected to be president. Romans 13 says, God establishes authority, and to resist the governing authorities is to rebel against him, period. And that was written when Nero was in power. How much more true is it today in America to resist the governing authorities, to slander the governing authorities is to slander and to sin against God. Not just the Bible. And I see you're all thinking about that. Verse 9. Some of you had the look on your face like, what are you saying? You talking to me? <laughs> if a wise man goes to court with a fool, this is one of my favorite ones. The fool rages and scoffs and there's no peace. Now, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked me that because I'm going to tell you. Now, he's saying, do not invest your energies and resources with dealing with an unreasonable, irrational person. So he wants you, the Holy Spirit, wants you to weigh is it worth to litigate against somebody who's crazy and makes you crazy and is going to put you through hell for a, to get your flat screen TV back or whatever it is, all right? Is it worth, listen, watch Judge Judy. This is all you need to do. It is, I, every single time I watch an episode, it's like that was not worth the $500, you, you know, but I'm not talking about the process, the half an hour process there. I'm talking about the story that I'm hearing. Whoa, all for what? Addicted in car door, right? Well, they're going to pay. Well, I don't, yes. 
God has put into place a system where you can get your, your door fixed or you can get your iPhone back from that thief, right? You, you can do that. But the, the Bible says, think about it. Is it going to be worth you losing night's sleep, uh, an ulcer, uh, going in and listening to them tell the lies, and you'll have to say, it's a bigger nightmare to actually litigate than Paul the Apostle tells the Corinthians, why not rather just be wronged and trust God? Just trust God with it. Now, there are times where you're going to want to litigate, and uh, there's not a sin in that. But he's just saying, weigh it out, people. Weigh it out. What is it going to cost you mentally, emotionally, spiritually? Might be just nice just to never mention their names again and get a new car or a new iPhone and go on a trip to Hawaii <laughs> without them. Verse 10. Bloodthirsty men hate a man of integrity and seek to kill the upright. So here's a shout out. The Holy Spirit says, I want to tell you something about thugs. They're not just happy being thugs. They, they have a special hatred for people who are not thugs. Because if you're not a thug and you're a man or a woman of integrity, they hate you. And because you bring conviction, they'd like to erase you and justify murder of you. That's how strong a bad guy who's given to badness, who has to be impacted by a good life, wants to take away that torment to his conscience that he's in the wrong. So he says, listen, be careful around thugs, you righteous. You stir, you stir things up. I mean, we got to shine the light. But it irritates those who live in darkness, right? So verse 11. Verse 11 says, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. We have seen this before because anger... If it gets a hold of you, and we're not talking about righteous anger, it's very rare that anybody, any Christian ever has true righteous anger. We always say it's righteous anger, but uh, yeah, you know, I don't know if it really is. Righteous anger is when um, you know, you've been wronged or hurt or injustice has happened, and, uh, but it, it's okay to be ang angry without sinning. But here he's talking about just that rage that is so destructive and dangerous. And so uh, he's just really saying, listen, you want to know someone who's spiritually mature? It's the person who doesn't show that they're irritated. The person who is very spiritually immature is a person who is always showing how irritated they are at every little thing. Uh, they, they, they don't know how to even fake it. You know, there's a way to be irritated, but smile, right? And, and be praying through it and show the restraint. Because who doesn't get irritated? We work with broken people. We live among uh, people who have sin problems. Right? So we have to, first of all, learn how to overlook and extend grace, but also love, to, to live in love is to not even get offended in the first place. And I'm talking about petty little 
things. That the way people looked at you or didn't include you or said, or you heard them blowing off some steam about you. Those things you just have to let go if you're spiritually mature. You keep yourself under control. You're not always just, what? What? What was that? What do you mean by that? All the time. That's just spiritual baby. No offense. <laughs> Verse 12. If a ruler listens to lies, all his officials become wicked. So verse 12 here, it says, really, this is what it's saying. Uh, the, once again, the leader sets the ethical tone. So if the, if the person in charge likes to listen to lies, right, he's corrupt, right, then it sets the atmosphere in the organization or the nation for that matter. This is how we do business with this guy who call, is calling the shots. So if he's corrupt, then everybody around him, it's a culture of corruption. So he helps people by his unethical behavior to become corrupt. Now, it works the other way. If somebody doesn't put up with that, like, for example, King Solomon's father, a line or two from one of his songs, Psalms, let me, uh, oh, I have the slide. Here's what dad said. <laughs> Only those who are above reproach will be allowed to serve me. I will not, King David speaking, I will not allow deceivers to serve in my house, and liars will not stay in my presence. My daily task will be to ferret out, to just kind of winnow out the wicked and free the city of the Lord from their grip. That kind of thing at the top, everybody knows he's not a game player. Don't mess around, or you'll be miserable, or you'll be out of a job, you see. So the wider scope of this is however you conduct yourself, you create a climate of either corruption or morality. That's the point here. Verse 12. Thank you. 13. Thank you again. I retract that former thank you. Who was it? All right. The poor man and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives sight to, to the eyes of both. And we've been down this road before, and it's God just saying, the sad irony of man's inhumanity to man is that God created both of them. So God created the oppressor who's oppressing the God-created victim. And so it, it's, a, it's a sad paradox. It's really speaking of the brotherhood of man in the sense that God has created all human beings. Now, we are not all brothers because we are not all God's children. You, we were not God's children before we came to Christ. Everyone in this room was separated from God. We were God's creation. We were not God's child. You have to have God's son in order to be adopted into the family to all who received him and believed on his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And if we were all children of God, then why did Jesus call the Pharisees children of the evil one? And so this is just still very powerful, saying, listen, the person who you're abusing or, or telling lies about or slandering has been made in the image of God. And you don't have the right to do it because that person 
That person, whether they know God or not, belongs to God, and he made them. That's what he's trying to say here. Now verse 14. If a king judges the poor with fairness, his throne will be always secure. So this is an easy one. The duration of an administration depends on its moral character. Simple. Verse 15. The rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces his mother. Now, the word mother there does mean mother, but it also can mean parents. So in, in, in the wider scope of things, he's talking about the parents and how bad behavior of children will reflect upon mom and dad. So wise parents discipline. We have seen this over and over in the Proverbs, so I don't need to go on. Now here, left to himself means in the Hebrew, unsupervised, uncorrected, and also unloved. It is a sign that a parent does not truly biblically love a child who uh, they let be on their own without any correction. That's called apathy. It's not, they're not engaged because they're distracted or they have some other problem, but that's what the Bible says in Proverbs 13 and verse 24. Um, note takers, you can, chapter 13, 24, verse 24, chapter 23, verses 13 through 14, chapter 22, verse 15, all talk about the importance of disciplining Children, little junior, our little cherubs need to be uh, taught right from wrong, right? So um, if you leave them to themselves because you can't stand the idea of making little junior sad by taking something away from them or taking something to them, uh, away from them or to them, uh, as the case uh, may be, um, it, re- it will produce unruly Behavior and it will be shameful and it will be a reflection uh, uh, on mom and dad. That's interesting. So it, it, it is disgraceful to the parent. Now, when children grow up, they have free wills. And so we have to factor that in because good, decent parenting goes into kids who, through their teenage years, have to find their own Jesus. And uh, it is embarrassing and humiliating to the parents, but it is not, uh, it is in spite of their good parenting, not because of their neglectful parenting. Amen? Amen. Uh, Verse 16. When the wicked thrive, so does sin, but the righteous will see their downfall. I like this one. It really is very Disney. Um, It's saying good will always win in the end. That's really what he's saying. In this life, wicked and wrongdoing, it has its heyday, but one day he will appear and uh, he, <laughs> he is going to bring justice and um, the righteous, those right with him, will live to see the downfall and the demise of those who rejected his gospel. Uh, verse 17, here we go again. Discipline your son and he will give you peace. He will, bring, he will bring delight to your soul. And so why does it keep coming up in the, in the Proverbs? Because it's so hard to do. Who wants to have the love of your life snarl back at you and say things like, I hate you, I don't like you, you're hurting me? Who want, Nobody wants to confront and, and have all of that emotional chaos and 
Oh, especially through the young teens. And, you know, it's just hard. So he has to keep saying here are two benefits of doing the difficult work of disciplining little junior. And, and first of all, you know, he, he says um, benefit number one, uh, you'll be able to enjoy being in the same room with him. All right. No, number one, <laughs> number one, and so will everybody else. You, you, you know, <laughs> you know, you know what I'm talking about. When the kids come over and they just start climbing over everything and pulling the dog's ears and, and you know, demanding things and being rude. And it's just terrible. It just, it's just awful. It causes all kinds of problems. And so you'll enjoy the peace. It's an investment. He's saying, look, do the hard work. It's an investment in your own sanity. That's what he's saying. And also benefit number two, when Junior is praised and well-received, and he'll be a delight to you. You'll take pride in, in you know, uh, the kid will come home uh, from school with a report card that says, you know, citizenship. They always have that on the report cards for the little ones, how good of a citizen they are. You know, they share and they take, you know, all of that. And, and they get an O for outstanding. O is the highest you can get, you know. And, and that's a delight. That's a delight to mom and dad when somebody says, your kids are so well-mannered. Your kids look at adults in the face and say, hello, hello, Mr. Jones. Wow, wow. It's a See, that's a delight. It reflects back on you. So do the hard work. Do the hard work. Verse 18. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. This is the famous one in King James. You know this one. It says, where there's no vision, the people perish. And so there are similar ideas here. Cast off restraint. Really, um, the King James doesn't have it as good as the NIV. This time, I give the shout out to King James when he deserves it. Uh, but this time, no. Uh, uh, the, the word can mean perish, but it really means to let loose. So here, here's the idea here in verse 18. He's saying... Um, a, a nation, in this case, was a theocracy, Israel, right? With the Lord was the king. Right? A nation's well-being depends on obedience to divine revelation, which comes in two forms, vision and God's word, the law, right? So he's saying a leader of Israel, wider scope, God's people, has to be able to put out a knowledge of God's word, God's will, what does God require of us? Without that vision, your purpose, without that knowledge of what God expects of his people, people cast off restraint, or if you want to say they fall apart, they, they perish in the sense of spiritually speaking, they have no revelation of God. And where there's no revelation of God, I don't care how big the church is, uh, is at. If you're not skillfully, well, I'm trying to quote this guy here, listen, churches that do not teach the Bible thoroughly, truthfully, and skillfully will ultimately die on the vine. People will cast off restraint morally and theologically who are not fed the word of God. And anarchy results. They wither 
They drift, they fall away. That's what casting off restraint means. But blessings in store for those who hear the word and obey it. Listen, this is my job. This is what my job is. I charge you, Paul says to all ministers, I charge you in the presence of God and his angels and the Lord Jesus Christ. Preach the word. That's the charge. That's the charge I'll answer to. Did you preach the word? Did you go through my word? Did you, did, did you offer the vision? Did the people know what God expected? And did you go through the book? Yes. Amen. <laughs> I tried. That's, what I, that's the answer is, you know, who, who does anything perfectly the way God wants them to do it? You know, but we try to be um, found faithful. Amen? Amen. Listen, man cannot live by just three square meals a day, Jesus said. He said, you'll die if all you're eating is food. You'll die. You can't live that way. You, you can live through what God says, what God is saying, through the vision. That's what he's saying. Prepare my people. Feed my people. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. You know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know all things. I love you. Then feed my sheep to all pastors. Do you love me? To all people. Show your love for me by nurturing my people with my word. I mean, more so for for ministers, but also to everybody who's also... In ministry, really? Verse 19. I love this one. A servant cannot be corrected by mere words. Though he understands, he won't respond. Now, here's what he's saying. Sometimes those in positions of authority are naive. They don't understand that some people are easy to train and they learn well. They learn easily, right? And there are others, and this is who we're talking about, who are kind of stubborn and, and mere words. They understand you, but they don't want to give you what you're asking for. And in this regard, we're really talking about uh, employers and employees here. This is the understanding of this verse. So uh, the employer thinks to himself, all I need to do is tell you, this is why I'm hiring you. I want you to do A, B, and C, and this is how I want you to do it. And this is when I want you to do it, and by when, I'd like you to have it done, right? Are we clear? Yes, we're clear. And he's saying, these kinds of people, they're clear. They don't need any more words. The problem is, they're not going to do it. That's the problem. So you think, you think, I'll just throw more words at you. Oh, what? Come on, back in here. I noticed that you, you didn't do this right, and I need to tell you you need to do it like this now. You know, we, we throw more words. He says, no, no, boss. He got you the first time, and he'll get you the second time and the third time. It's not about words. So stop throwing words. And this, oh, this is big for parents, too. It's not quite the same analogy, but, but for parents and for spouses. Oh, I look at spouses all the time. I'm sitting on my couch, right, and, and, and doing their thing. And they say to me, I think we have a communication problem. And I say to them, no, you don't. You don't. Do you both speak English? Yeah. Oh, okay, tell me what the problem is. 
so she'll tell me the problem, right? Or he'll tell me the problem. And then I'll say, well, that sounds pretty understandable, and I get that. Do you get that? And the other person says, yeah, I get that. So how is it that you have a communication problem? Everybody loves to say, oh, we just have a communication problem. What? If you speak Chinese and they speak English, then you have a communication problem. <laughs> but if you both speak English and you both went to you know, third grade, you understand each other. The problem isn't communication. And the problem is you don't want to do what the other person's asking you to do. That's the problem. And how are you ever going to fix it if you run around telling yourself lies? We have a communication problem. You don't. The person can tell, well, what's the problem with this person? They tell you. What do you want from that person? What does she want from you? He says it, exactly. And then they say, we have a communication problem. What? You don't, so he's trying to say, stop thinking you can throw some more words at it. 25 years, husbands and wives and parents and kids. Words, words, words to fix it. No. He's saying maybe there needs to be a breakthrough in love. Maybe there needs to be some inspiration. Maybe they need to hear how much you care about them. Maybe they need some motivation and reward. Maybe they need a threat. Maybe they need to be punished. Oh, well, not in marriage. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> I'm talking. <laughs> yeah, I tried that, though. I can just hear. <laughs> I tried to put it. She it doesn't All right. Do you get it? They aren't deaf. A, they're not deaf. B, they're not stupid. See, there's no communication problem. It isn't about words. Use your words no more. Use them to talk to God about them. You will have more progress. All right, next verse. Do you see a man who speaks in haste? There's more hope for a fool than him. All right. How many vessels have you sunk with your loose lips? Just... Just no, okay. I don't want to talk about mine either. Impulsive speech is the height of all folly and the source of much of our hardship. Loose lips, fill it in. Loose lips. One more time. Everybody together. Loose lips sink ships. That's the point. Just stop and think. Just stop and think. I have a problem with this one. I like to just, when I feel something, I like to say it. You know, I'm feeling happy. I'm feeling sad. You know, I, I, I just, there was a joke today about somebody walking through the office. And I'm, if I like somebody, I, I want to hire them. You know, that's, that's how I am. I just, I mean, if I like you, I know your parents and that kind of thing, you're hired. You know, it's kind of a, <laughs> we have 12 employees, by the way. And I like them all, but they didn't all get hired that way, trust me. But, you, you know, you just have to stop, slow down, you know, and think before you speak. Amen? Amen. You can cut that part out of the tape, the part about, yeah, just, yeah. No? Okay, fine. <laughs> I don't care. That's the way I am. Verse 21. If a man pampers his servant from youth, he will bring grief in the end. 
So here's a word about spoiling either an employee or a child. Uh, the word in the Hebrew for pamper is to deal delicately with them. Now, we're supposed to be kind and loving and grace-filled people. That's not the problem. The problem is, and we all know what it is, it's the, <laughs> it's the delicacy in protecting them from uh, correction or the consequences of their own bad behavior. It's uh, overindulging them. It's enabling uh, them, giving them whatever they want, whenever they want it, those kinds of things. And, and here's the reason we pamper people, is out of our own insecurity and our fears. And uh, we need to uh, get courageous or we're going to spoil or ruin people by not giving them what they need. All right, uh, moving on, verse 22. An angry man stirs up dissension, and a hot-tempered one commits many sins. And this is uh, repeated again. Angry people bring trouble on themselves and upset everyone around them. Here's what King David said in one of his songs. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Uh, do not fret, it leads only to evil. Uh, verse 23, a man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. This is a gospel truth. Jesus repeated this over and over again. He said, uh, and I'll just quote Matthew 23 and verse 12, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And he said it over and over again. So when you're all about you and you're always lifting yourself up, he says, guarantee spiritual law, God speaking, I promise you, I will make sure that you get to your place, your low place. I'll help you down. I, I don't want that to happen. So it's a good thing to start your day on the bottom floor, on the basement floor, and kind of stay there, amen, so that you don't have to be sent down to the basement floor, right? All right, verse 24. The accomplice of a thief is his own enemy. He is put under oath and dare not testify. That's a confusing one, but it won't be for long. Verse 24, it says... Even if you don't actually commit the crime, but you hang out with people who commit crimes, and you are happen to be an accomplice because you didn't stop it from happening, you were in the room when he lifted the wallet, right? So because you associate with bad behavior and you are of, of sorts an accomplice to it, you could have stopped it or you didn't tell anybody about it, right? So now... You're called in because people knew you were in the house and they want to know, and so they put you under te te testimony. And now you're, you dare not testify. Why? Because you will incriminate yourself because you're part of the problem. So, so really, the deep thing here, the meaning, the takeaway is watch out who you hang around with. And, and you know, because when you know somebody's doing something wrong, and you don't go to anybody, you don't tell the teacher, the pastor, the manager, the supervisor, the mom or dad, you're an accomplice. You're an accomplice. Don't be, don't be an accomplice. Moving on, 25. Fear of man will prove to be a snare 
but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. This is like five-star proverb, all right? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, what drives the engine of your life? Is it peer pressure? I mean, is it fear? Do not be led by fear, but be, do not be driven by fear. So many people are. If I do this, then this will happen. If I don't do that, then, you know, if I, if I break up with him, oh, da, 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 da. And so you're staying together because of what? Fear of something and not the truth. You don't trust God more than you fear the situation or the person, right? Or if I become a Christian, my dad will throw fit. Then he'll disown me. You, you can't fear people. You can't live to please. Uh, you can't lead your life to please everyone around you, to gain everybody's approval. Uh, it's overly concerned with what people uh, think. Let me tell you about the book that I, I reminded people on Sunday. When people are, the name of the book is called When People Are Big and God is Small. And there's a colon and it says, Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man by Edward Welch. It's a really good book. I highly recommend it because we often do things out of fear and intimidation rather than trusting the Lord. Verse 26. Many seek an audience with a ruler, but it's from the Lord that man gets justice. So here, again, a great miscalculation and a great pitfall for all um, believers. We look to the person instead of realizing it's God behind the person and his blessing that enables us to get what we need. In this case, it's justice. So it's like, oh, I got to get to know this guy because he really is a mover and shaker or whatever. If I get in to see him, then all my problems will be solved a little. And, and he's like, oh, come on. You don't need that dude. Sometimes God will, will use that person, and that's important to make that connection, no doubt. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, get a good lawyer, but he's not going to win your case unless God helps him to win your case. Uh, find the best doctor, but he can't heal you without God say so. You know, find the good doctor. It's good, but just know who's the healer. You know, find a good realtor, the broker, the, the online dating site, a reputable one. Why not? I mean reputable one. You don't have to scowl. Seriously, are you just like, okay? you know? It's God. It's, it's not the realtor. It's not the broker. Uh, but you say, I know that in my head, but oh, no, 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 no. We see, oh, look at that guy. Look at that gal. I'm so glad. Oh, that's who I need. That's who I need. And the Lord's like, well, what am I? Amen. I think we got one more. Last one. The righteous detest the dishonest and the wicked detest the upright. Do you not love that? Do you know what he's saying there? Oh, there's such wisdom and insight in this. Let me tell you. He says, regarding believers and unbelievers, we don't like how they live and they don't like how we live. And there's not a blessed thing you can do about it. In fact... 
If you try to take that away, that enmity away, you're going to change the gospel because this enmity begins at Christ. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace in Gumaya. I came to bring a sword and turn a father against the son, a daughter against the mother, a son-in-law against the father-in-law, a daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. Three on this side, two on this side, and a family. Right? Oh, if you're going to try to fix that, oh, you're going to not have a gospel anymore. You're going to be trying to be more tolerant, more loving, and start to change things around so that everybody can join hands and there's no division at the table. There has to be division at the table. That's what it's saying, unfortunately. And what started with Jesus and conversion and Christian conversion will ultimately be permanent and eternal. Matthew 25, when Jesus appears and touches down, it's the sheep and goat separation. And he says, this one, to my right, you, left, you, right, you. That's what he's going to do to every human being. Not us. We are not sheep and goat judgment. We've already been brought up with him. We return with him, and we help him. We judge the world. Remember, we're part of that. So we're part of the sheep and goat judgment in that we're administrating with him when he says to the left, to the right. And the, those on the right go off into eternal life. And those on the left go away to everlasting loss. Whoosh. Permanently. This is what he's saying. It's a fact of life. It doesn't mean you hate anyone. It doesn't mean you disinvite anybody. It means there's a divide and an enmity that Jesus said in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 to the devil. He said, I'm going to make a divide. There are going to be two kinds of people on the planet, only two kinds. The seed of the woman, Christ people, and I'm going to split them from the seed of the serpent, your people. And there's going to be a divide. He calls it enmity. That means this. Our job is to take it seriously, to be compassionate, and to be light and loving and inviting and warm, but courageous to acknowledge the divide and to warn people about that and help them over. Amen? Yes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. We pray that you would bless us now as we reflect on all of these truths that have come before us. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.